Well, I have this set up today, not as a pulpit, but as a counseling center. Imagine you're coming into my office for some counseling. And um, we're going to talk today about marriage and singleness, because honestly, we have been working through the Bible and we believe in exegetical study. Let the Bible teach us. Let the Bible dictate the conversation. But before we talk, before I invite you in, I want you to imagine if I'm a car salesman. And as a car salesman, you come to me and you say, hey, um, I'm looking for a new car. We have three kids. We go on a lot of trips across country. I want a reliable car. Do you have any, have any cars that are really reliable? Where a good suspension, the engine will make it you know, for years and years. And uh, I say, sure, I take you out back to the lots. I show you all the new models, new makes and models. Then you come down, and you sit, and so did you like any? I, I have one more thing. I'm o- I only have $500 to spend. Oh, well, why didn't you tell me that before we get into what you wanted? Well, you know, do you have a good model for 500 bucks? Something for my family that's reliable? Yeah, I've got an old 1974 Volkswagen in the back with three wheels. That's all I got. But the idea is, when people often come into counseling, they will say they want counseling, marital counseling. But they're really not willing to spend what it costs to have what's best. A lot of people come into counseling and uh, they want loopholes. They want ways out. They want exemption clauses instead of what's best. Well, today we're going to go into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and Paul is going to talk about married and single people, but he's going to talk about best practices. And by best practices, what I mean is what is best for you, how God's designed it. Now, I have to say, this gets uh, a little bumpy in, in the middle because we're going to talk about sex. And if you have any problem with that, talk to Jared Doty. He wanted me to do 1 Corinthians. So it's his fault. But what I also want to say is we believe something here. We believe this is God's inerrant, inspired word, which we believe that the Holy Spirit spoke through men to write what God wants us to know. So what we do is when we approach this, and it says something that we don't necessarily like or it has some commands that we aren't used to, we have two obligations. Number one, to make sure we're understanding rightly. So that's one of the parts of preaching is we're trying to make sure you understand rightly. Then the second thing we do is we take what we know for sure, what Scripture is saying, and then we say, am I living like this? And that's up for you and the Holy Spirit to work through. Because we believe as you obey this Bible, your life is blessed. Joy comes. Peace comes. That's why we preach it. Some churches, I think, preach it because they like control. We don't preach it for control. We preach it because we want your life to resemble Christ. And when your life is united to Christ... His Spirit flows through you. That's the goal. Does that make sense? Are we clear on that? All right. So let's begin. Marriage and family. 
Now, before uh, we go into some details, every, this begins in verse 1 in a new way. Corinthians has been talking about some things. Now Paul is going to address very specific questions that the Corinthians have. Look what it says in verse 1 in chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, meaning when he started this church and before this letter, the Corinthians wrote him some questions, some questions about what it means to be a Christian, how to live. So what he did is he responded to those very specific questions. So what this is, is a response. This isn't just a one-size-fits-all. He's dealing with a very specific context, and we've got to try to decipher that. For instance, let's say you came into my office to talk about finances and marriage. And all of, a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, I just start talking about the five love languages, ignoring what your question is. You'd be like, that has nothing to do with what my question is. So we, what, we need to know what is the question. And so context matters. It really does. After doing a lot of reading on this, here's what I believe is going on in the church at that time. Because of the cultural con- confusion with regards to sexual immorality. So if you notice in chapter 6, they had some problems. And that's what we talked about last week. Verse 9, he says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, that's the porneia, anything outside of marriage, covenant, is outside of God's will for you. That's the point. Remember in chapter 5, a man was sleeping with his father's wife. That's wrong. So other people that were in the church were idolaters. They would worship other gods. And often when they worshiped other gods, they would go to the prostitutes of those other gods. That's what verse 16 is about. Do you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Then if you go back to verse 9, some were adulterers. They would be sleeping with other people's wives and husbands. Some people were practicing homosexuality, which we talked about last week. In the Greek, there's two forms. You have the, the young guy that's being used by the older man. And so there was some sexual problems going on. There really was. So Paul writes chapter 7, verse 1, to deal with this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That means outside of the bonds of marriage, what we talked about in chapter 6. So he was dealing with some of that. But when, they, when the Corinthians heard that, they heard the phrase, some heard the phrase, it is good for man not to have any sexual relations with women, as if sex was a bad thing. So what was also going on is some women were even taking asceticism to the extreme. Here's what asceticism is. It's kind of like being a nun or a monk or a priest. So some people in that day said, well, if Paul says it's wrong, then we shouldn't engage in it at all. And the higher spiritual plane is to abstain completely. And so they were thinking complete abstinence was the highest form of devotion to God. I'm very spiritual, so I don't engage in that. Which led many of the men to find sexual fulfillment with prostitutes. So they'd be married, the women would abstain, and the men are like, okay, if you're going to go do that, then I'm going to go you know, relieve myself pleasure elsewhere. That's what was going on. And so he's writing out of that context. So let's begin 
The first thing he's going to talk about is marriage and sex. Starting in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation of sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the married and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise control... They should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. First thing I want to point out is verse 7. Paul is saying this. Marriage and singleness are both gifts from God. He, Paul, was single at the time. And he says, I wish that all were as I am, which is single. But, then he said, each has his own gift. That word is grace, God's grace, from God one has one kind, and one has another. What I would say is for too long the church, especially the Christian church, has looked down on single people. As if singleness is wrong. Or not complete. You're a half person. So a lot of times single people come into Bible studies. and, Oh honey, I, I know some good men for you. Or to the men, when are you going to get married? I'll do you some good. And Paul is saying both marriage and singleness is God's gift. Not one is better than the other. And in our Christian circles for too long, we have promoted marriage as the highest attainment. You know what the highest attainment is? Life in Christ. Regardless. That's the highest attainment. And so if both are a gift, you could say this, they are both from God. He decides. And if they are both a gift, they are good. Let God decide. We'll talk more about singleness later. The second thing is this, sex is good and a natural part of life. Look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Instead of the temptation of sexual morality, just complete abstinence, he's saying, no, the way God designed it is God brings a wife for a man and a husband for a wife. That's the way he designed it. There is, sadly, um, there has been within Christian teaching that sex itself is dirty. Actually, Augustine taught that it happened after the fall. So it was kind of like something God had to include after the fall, where the truth of the matter is it's part of God's design. That's why he said the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. It's God's design. As one writer says, God made us sexual creatures, and because God made us so, sex is good. 
It is. Within Christian marriage, it is the most intimate celebration of life together, of oneness. The problem is, is that um, I like to say it like this. It's, I call it the porky pig effect. In the old, like, 1950s, uh, Looney Tunes would have porky pig. Anybody ever remember porky pig? Raise your hand. Boy, do you remember porky pig, don't you? All right, all right. It was, yeah, Porky Pig made good bacon. So Porky Pig liked to eat a lot of food. One day he's eating these apples, and this one person, one, one devious fox, I don't know what this animal was, but he took green apples that weren't ripe, spray-painted them all red, and sold them to Porky Pig. So Porky Pig ate a whole bucket of red apples, and he got sick because actually they were green. So they really weren't ripe yet. And in our culture, that's what's happened to sex. It ripens in the marital covenant. But what has happened is we have this free expression of sex, like the show on Netflix called Cuties, and it ruins it. It kind of destroys it. And then not only that, some of the apples have worms in it, and they're rotten, and they're spray-painted red. Sexual abuse is how I'm going to... Some people have been abused sexually, so now they think sex is terrible. No, it's God's gift in the right context. That's the point. And the way that is the right context is three and four, mutual submission. Look what he says. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So it's mutual. One, one person said, for some reason in our culture, sex is like the privilege of the male and the duty of the wife. Where what Paul is saying, it's both the privilege and duty of both the husband and wife. Privilege in the sense of it's made for joy. and duty, it's made for service. The third thing Paul is saying, though, is that temptation is real. So help your partner through it. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then look at verse uh, 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control... They should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. So what was happening is in this context, some, and some writers believe it was mostly the women, but they're holding back sex because they either wanted to be super spiritual, like the highest form is just being committed to God, or some honestly would say, oh, their partner doesn't deserve it, so I'm going to kind of punish them. But be careful, is what Paul's saying. Because Satan knows that the flesh gets hungry. And then also in verse 9, the idea here is that what was happening, verse 9, but they cannot exercise self-control. So some women were separating from the men to basically become higher, so they are leaving the men alone. So the men just are like, alright, you know what I'm going to do? Just going to go to the brothels. I'm gonna, you know, that's the way it is. I can't get it there, I'm going to get it there. Do you know some men do that through porn in the Christian church? 
It's really bad. God says sex is natural. Serve each other because Satan's going to tempt you otherwise. This is one reason, truthfully, why I think there's so much trouble in the Roman Catholic Church. They are insisting that men who want to be priests must abstain. Paul says, no, it's a gift. And if you don't have the gift, you're going to be tempted. Temptation is real. So some people say, so what if uh, the marriage isn't working? I've had that often. It's just not working. What if one of, my, one of the spouses, I just lost love. I just lost love. And what if the marriage, it just started wrong. We're different people now. We're not the same who we were when we said I do. So the idea, the question is, can I get out of this? This is where 10 and 11 come in. Listen to verse 10 and 11. Paul says, um, let me get to chapter 7, there it is, 10, to, be, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So he's saying, this isn't my opinion, this is God's. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So in other words, divorce was never part of God's design. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be remarried to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So divorce was never part of God's design. Apparently in Corinth, it was really easy to get divorced. You just walked away and went to be with somebody else. In Michigan, we have no-fault divorce. Makes it a little bit harder. Not much. And Paul is saying, okay, if you want to be separated, stay that way. Or get remarried to the person that you separated from. Some Corinthians who wanted to be completely devoted to God in the church would also leave to be in a higher spiritual plane. And then they'd get tired of it. And then they'd want to consider getting remarried. This passage, number one, is not addressing the issue of remarriage. A lot of people will go into this passage and say, oh, what does it say about remarriage? This is just dealing with divorce. Don't do it. But the second thing, it's dealing with something even more important. Let me go to two again. And the main point here is found in verse 12 through 16. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Here's what's going on. Paul came in town. Corinthians, most of them were pagan. He tells them about Jesus, they become believers. In some homes, the wife believes and the husband doesn't. Or in some homes, the husband believes 
and the wife doesn't. So what do they do? It's a mixed marriage. Do I just leave because we're not on the same page? And Paul says, no. Live at peace. Remain together because wife, you probably don't realize you're going to be able to influence your husband for Christ in so many ways and your children. So hang in there. And then he says, but if they want to leave, they just can't take it, be at peace. Let them go. My sister Gina, oh, this was a while ago. My sister Gina came to visit me at Moody Bible Institute. And it was an amazing trip um, I was praying for, and I led her to Christ. She came to Jesus. After that trip, she went back home to California where her husband, she started telling her husband, and he didn't want to hear about it. He's like, I don't want to hear about it. She said, we need to go to church. I don't want to go to church. In fact, he would see some videos from my brother Don who would have his daughter standing on a table singing, Jesus loves me, and my brother-in-law's, I don't want to hear that Christian stuff. So here's my sister who's on fire with her husband who doesn't want to hear it. When they got married, before they were Christian, every Friday they'd go to the beach. They live right in Laguna Beach. They'd go to the beach and have a bottle of wine together or a, a glass of wine together. You know, about 7 o'clock at night, and they'd watch the sunset go down just to relax and talk about the week. Well, when my sister became a Christian, she told her husband, I can't drink. I'm a Christian. He's like, you can't have one glass of wine with me? So she called me up. and She said, what do you think? Because the Bible says alcohol is a sin. I said, where? Show me, where? Where does it say it's a sin to drink? Didn't Jesus turn water into wine? And I know, oh, a pastor shouldn't talk about this. Didn't Jesus turn water into wine? Well, yeah, but that was grape juice, was it? Because the same word is used in Ephesians 5. And it says, don't get drunk on wine. So if it's grape juice, how can you get drunk on it? Just a question. So I said, Gina, love your husband. Go ahead, have a glass of wine. She did. And he goes, he's like, wow. And they did the Friday, share wine, talk about the week. After a while, my brother-in-law decided to start to go to church with her. After a while, the pastor started to meet my brother-in-law. After a while, my brother-in-law gets saved. All their kids get saved. Today, their oldest son, Mitch, is a big leader in his church. The second son, Marcus, he's a youth pastor in California. The youngest daughter, Nikki, serves at that youth ministry as a leader. My sister's devotion and love to her husband helped them all come to know the truth. Yeah, but they had a glass of wine. Come on, get over it. Uh-oh, I might be fired after this sermon. All right. Next one, the single life. Then he's going to go into the single life. So the single life, he's going to begin in verse 25. Now Paul says, Now concerning the betrothed, those are people who are engaged. They're single, but dedicated. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Remember, they thought any kind of sexual morality is sin. He's like, no, no, no. 
And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had, had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. And I'll explain what he means by that. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit. Not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So Paul was single, and in this he's basically saying, in his opinion, singleness is great. It's a great thing. Stay single. That's what he would advise. He'd advise it for two reasons. Number one, the time is tough and it's short. The Corinthians were going to be persecuted. If you're married and you're persecuted, it's difficult. It's tough. And he's saying, I don't want you to go through that. Second thing is he's saying, if you get married, you're going to be worried about a lot of other things than just God. Believe me, if you're a husband and your wife wants new carpet, get the new carpet. But I want to dedicate that money to missions. Yeah, but your wife won't be too happy about that. I guarantee you. Take care of her. And then the other thing, the wife, your husband, what if he wants a four-wheeler and he's going to go hunting on the 15th of November? Get him that four-wheeler. You're going to be dealing with those things. When you're single, you don't have to. But when you're married, you have to care for those you live with. That's what he's saying. That's why it gets tough. You've got to decide, what are we going to do with our lives? We're going to go see Grandma this weekend? I don't want to see Grandma this weekend. You're married to me, honey. We're going. So it gets tough. It gets tough. When you're single, I'm not going to go see grandma. So, second thing he's saying, in God's opinion, in God's opinion, marriage is still a good thing. That's what Paul's saying. If you want to get married, good. So sum up. Three big takeaways. Number one, there's no superior status. You're not better than somebody because you're married and they're not. We're all sufficiently good in Christ. Second thing, God takes vows very seriously. I believe if you say I do and you continue with your I do, I think when God says well done, one of the things he's going to say well done for is you were faithful to your I do. That's a big deal. And then the third thing is this is find contentment in Christ. Look at verse 17. Actually, 17 through 24, he's going to talk about your objective isn't to be at a different place. If you're married, don't 
desire to be single. And if you're single, don't desire to be married. Be content where you are. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all churches. Look at verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain. So the idea is, don't think going outside of your station is going to be better than where you're at. Enjoy Christ here. Be content with Christ in this moment. That's the point. Francis Schaeffer wrote this book, No Little People, back in the 70s. He's a great writer. But he writes, man not only becomes someone, but, a per- but is a person from conception on. That's why what Teresa does is so important. moment that child is conceived, they become a living being made in the image of God. Forever. It matters who you are, not what you've produced, earned, or been noticed for. It doesn't even matter if you're married or not in, in your station in life. What matters is that you are made in the image of God. We must remember throughout our lives that God, in God's sight, there are no little people and no little places. Only one thing's important. To be consecrated persons in God's place for us at each moment. Just one last thing. I remember a man who was desperate to get married. He got married really quick. And after he got married really quick, he said this, sometimes there are worse things than loneliness. If you know what I'm talking about.